The Lunar Orbit Gateway is the same way. It will add Delta V to the mission, which is propulsion requirements. It will greatly constrain timing requirements of the mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, it adds complexity. By, by uh, timing, you mean because you have to, you have to rendezvous yes, at the right Yes, you have right to rendezvous. Point. And yeah. they've got six rendezvous in their mission. Mm-hmm. Six. I mean, uh, we, we, surely you're joking, Mr. Bridenstine. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Surely You're Joking. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Peter Hickerson. Welcome back. I've been gone a long time. I've been getting a lot of hate mail about it. I'm very sorry. Uh, but I'm back, and I'm here with uh, a, a previous guest who I really enjoyed talking to, Dr. Robert Zubrin, uh, the CEO and founder of the Mars Society. Do you, do you count as a CEO? I just call I myself or... president, president of the Mars. Okay. You know, CEO is just a bit pretentious. Uh-huh. Right. Possible future uh, president of Mars itself, maybe vice president if Musk gets there first. It's hard to say. Uh, and I'm here to talk about a new book that he was very kind enough to reach out and send to me. Um, a really exciting book, The Case for Space. Uh, subtitle How the Revolution in Space Flight Opens Up Future of Limitless Possibilities. It's an extremely optimistic book. Um, I think optimism is something a lot of people want to hear in space right now. And uh, um, uh, one of the things I want to talk about later in the episode is how there's so much pessimism around the world and technology and how I really think you made a, a very good case of confronting that. Um, and, uh, and I want to talk about some of those issues. So welcome to the show. Dr. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So uh, what brings you to L.A.? Because last time we were in Colorado where you normally live. Um, and I had family there, so I was visiting. But this time you're visiting here. Well, uh, this evening I'm giving a talk to the local uh, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, AIAA. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, what they call a distinguished lecturer. And they had me come in. I'm going to be talking the subject in the book. Uh-huh. And also trying to stir up interest for the Mars Society Conference, which is is going to be here in Los Angeles, October 17th through 20th. Yeah, this is awesome that it's uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, it was actually even closer to be in Pasadena last year. I almost went to that, but I had to do something else that time. Um, we're also, uh, we're very close right now to um, one of your favorite topics and, and something you talk about quite a bit in uh, in the book, which is SpaceX, which is just uh, a few blocks away from us. Uh, do you have any plans on visiting SpaceX while you're here? Or, well, I'll I'm probably sh- meet with a couple of people from SpaceX while I'm here. Okay. I mean, I'm sure you've uh, you've been there many times before. I have. Yeah. Um, they even have a full uh, Falcon 9 out on display um, out in front of their office, which is really awesome. You can go, just anybody can go to LAX if you live in the Los Angeles area. Or if you just are flying in and you want to see a Falcon 9 in person, you can go see one. They have one just just a few blocks away. Um, so, uh, in the case for space, uh, you make a really strong argument that going to space is not just a, a fun thing to do to prove that you can do it. Although that's, I, I guess, a good reason to do it. Also, sort of the uh, you know the Apollo moonshot model of space travel, but that it's actually profitable and beneficial. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, um, I think that. Um you know, the human expansion into space is, is uh, enormously beneficial and, in fact, uh, I would say necessary for a positive human future. And in the book, The Case for Space, uh, the final third of it, I go through some of the major reasons why, and I list them as for the knowledge, for the challenge, for our survival, for our freedom, and for the future. Uh, and... Uh, 
you know, these are all um, really important. I mean, one that, of course, NASA does frequently talk about with the, uh, the justification is uh, for the knowledge, um, uh, the NASA... Like such as the scientific knowledge. Yes. Uh, of course, the uh, scientific discoveries that we have been making in space are uh, tremendous. Uh, you know, uh, the planetary probes... Uh, the Mars rovers Cassini, the Hubble Space Telescope, Kepler Space Telescope, uh, just as an example, uh, discovered over 4,000 extrasolar planets. And not only that, on the basis of that sample, we can make a generalization that one in five stars have an Earth-sized planet in their habitable zone. Which is awesome. Yeah, no, it's completely <laughs> reshaped our view of, of, of reality. Um, but not only that, I mean, look... Um, most of the discoveries that we've made in physics have been um, either due to astronomy or significantly uh, contributed to by astronomy. I mean, we discovered the laws of gravity in classical physics through astronomy. We discovered much of electromagnetism through astronomy. We discovered and confirmed relativity through astronomy. We discovered nuclear fusion through astronomy. And... Um, you know, there's a, all sorts of things we don't understand about the universe, and the place where we're likely to find out the answers is space, because the universe provides a laboratory far more vast, with energies far more powerful than anything we could possibly build on, on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's that. There's the challenge. I think that civilizations are like individuals. We grow when we challenge ourselves. We stagnate when we do not. And, for example, a Humans to Mars program would be a tremendous positive challenge to any country that participated. It would say to every young person, learn your science, and you could be an explorer of new worlds. Out of that, we would get millions and millions of young scientists and engineers, just as we did from the Apollo program, but much more so in this day and age where the scientific professions are are, uh, open uh, both to men and women in a way that was not the case in, in, in the 60s. Um, you know, our survival, you know, the, you know, the earth is in space and things <laughs> in space are moving and hitting each other. And the earth, of course, has been hit by uh, asteroid-sized objects that have caused mass extinctions. Actually, we were hit by a very small asteroid last December 18th that landed in the Bering Sea, um, mm-hmm. exploded with an energy 10 times that of the Hiroshima bomb. And the, the so this is going on. And I do not agree with the people who give the reason that we should go into space so that if the Earth is destroyed by an asteroid, there'll be some survivors somewhere else. No, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. We're going into space so we'll have the power to direct the flight traffic. Mm -hmm. We're not going into space to uh, desert the Earth. We're going to space to protect the Earth. Mm -hmm. Okay, And then, you know, beyond all that, there is... um, the future, having an open future, having a, a future which is as vast and, and diverse and, in relation to our current reality as our current reality is in relation to uh, our point of origin as a few tribes in the Kenyan Rift Valley. Uh, now we're a global civilization, hundreds of nations, languages, literatures, diverse contributions to science and technology. Think of how that will be magnified if we go out into space and start uh, colonizing not only our own solar system, but worlds beyond the thousands and thousands of, of habitable worlds await us if we choose to um, 
settle them if we choose to give birth to new branches of human civilization uh, and create a future as vast and wondrous in comparison to our current prospect as, as what we have now is compared to how we started. And I mean, and if you do have it in your power to do something vast and wonderful and grand, uh, th then you should. And, and finally, uh, you know, this isn't just the far future. How you envision the far future affects what's going to happen in the near future. And the fundamental issue is this, okay? Uh, you know, what is the threat facing humanity today? Uh, it's not climate change or resource exhaustion or any of these things that people talk about or even asteroid impact, frankly. That was not, none of those are what threatened humanity in the 20th century. What threatened humanity in the 20th century were bad ideas, and in particular, one bad idea, which is that there isn't enough to go around. And mm -hmm. so sooner or later, we're going to have to have it out for who gets it. Right. And, uh, you, and, and, and by opening space, we refute that idea in a way that anyone can see. Because it's like, uh, space is like, you know, the first people arriving in North America 20,000 years ago. You know, it's like, there, no one would claim North America didn't have enough stuff at that, at that point, right? right? So you mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, climate change and children going to school. And one of the things that has uh, just really been bugging me a lot, particularly because I see it coming from what I would normally interpret as my political allies or, or science advocates, is this uh, idea that we're in such a tremendous danger from climate change that children shouldn't go to school and that all other budgetary issues should disappear and uh, one of the things I, I love about you make a case in in your book and also online you do this a lot too, where you point out um, something that really was an interesting idea to me, which I, I started looking into it and I realized that there's actually quite a bit of people who don't really even see climate change as uh, certainly not an existential threat, but not even necessarily something that is bad to everyone. It's uh, a thing that a large fraction of the world might even actually want to happen. And the more I looked at this idea, the more I realized, well, maybe that is, uh, you know, maybe this this alarmism culture about it is more about getting people to to shut down their own societies rather than than uh, and just let, you know, climate change happen. So uh, I'm not sure. I made well, a good, there's a, a number point of there. points to this, and yeah. uh, I try to make them in the book, The Case for Space. First mm. of all, climate change is real. It's a fact. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and uh, the world well, has in warmed that, In that by, anthropogenic greenhouse gases yeah, well, warm okay, the planet, sure. Yes, okay, and we've warmed the planet by about one Fahrenheit since the 1950s, mm -hmm. uh, and that's real, and it is consistent with the more conservative climate models of the increase of CO2 could, could, could cause that. So, mm -hmm. uh, it's By the a way, fact, I, it, I have to throw this in here. I think one of the funniest things about people who say that space travel should not be done instead of climate change is that you were talking about one of the things we discovered global warming from co2 is a thing we specifically discovered from space exploration that, that's course, quite true we right, discovered the greenhouse effect by exploring venus right so <laughs> we wouldn't even have been alerted to this now look one fahrenheit is not much and in fact its primary effect has been to lengthen the growing season so um a it's real b it's modest. C, it's been beneficial. But D, if it was to go on indefinitely, then it could become a very serious problem. So the issue here is uh, it, it, there's not a climate emergency. There's a climate issue. There's an issue with how we deal with CO2 emissions. Now, 
there are people who are advocating the solution that we simply uh, tax fuels to make them unaffordable to people of limited income. Mm -hmm. I think that's completely unethical. Mm -hmm. That's an absurd solution. There's a much better solution, which is to put the CO2 to work. Now, in fact, that has happened to a degree because, in fact, due to the CO2 enrichment of the Earth's atmosphere over the past uh, three quarters of a century, uh, the, the rate of plant growth on Earth on land has increased by mm-hmm. about 20%. And we, NASA has data. They can print charts. They'll show you. Right. Uh, Especially China, clear. actually. China's right. had 1% uh, green leaf growth per year for the last 20 years. Yeah, which is and so incredible. this is not just agriculture. Agriculture, of course, has done much better than this. But I'm talking about wild plants. Mm-hmm. The earth has become more green. Now, that's on land where CO2 is a limiting ingredient uh, for plant growth. Now, we haven't seen that in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Okay, and in some cases, we've seen uh, deleterious effects from increased CO2 concentrations, although mm-hmm. some of those effects have actually been do- done due to conventional pollution and overfishing, not CO2. Sure. Um, so there are but, some but, that are but, alarming, like, yeah. uh, uh, I, I shouldn't use the word alarming while I'm <laughs> criticizing alarmism, but uh, there's some that are concerning, like uh, acidity and increased temperature. Right. But, but here's the thing, okay. A pollutant is a material that you're not making use of and so is creating a problem. Mm -hmm. There was a time when oil seeps onto the ground were considered pollutants. They would ruin your farm. That was before we knew how to put oil to work. Mm -hmm. Okay, And, of course, uh, even water irrigation would be a problem if it's uncontrolled and you turn good farmland into swamp. Okay. Sure. <laughs> CO2 is a vital ingredient for life, provided that it can be taken up. The problem with CO2 for the ocean is that the growth of plants in the ocean is limited by trace elements, uh, iron and phosphorus and so forth, um, which in the 90% of the ocean are extremely rare. And so uh, 90% of the life in the ocean is generated in less than 10% of the ocean areas, in the coastal regions, in the continental shelves, in river deltas, and in upwelling areas. And the, the vast open oceans are deserts. Uh, and experiments have been done showing that putting just tiny amounts of, of iron into the mid-ocean can cause enormous plant blooms. And in fact, this was done in 2012 off the coast of the Pacific Northwest. It caused a tripling of the uh, return of salmon uh, because the baby salmons found abundant food out in the ocean as a result of this experiment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the the idea is put the CO2 to work, make the oceans bloom, restore our fisheries, mm-hmm. okay? But don't try to remedy this 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 problem by simply making fuel unaffordable. That's just crazy. By and, punishing and poor people. But that's right. Yeah. And furthermore, that uh, uh, solution tax, is, is yeah. unethical and it's impractical. It hasn't worked. It's been the uh, uh, position of choice by mm-hmm. the climate activists since the 1990s, and they've gotten no traction with it. And, and so... It, well, it's also... Uh, when it's a global problem like CO2... Um, and, and this is why I brought up the possibility of, in, of people intentionally wanting to benefit from a warmer planet. Uh, it's not going to work if it's a local tax. I mean, you can't stop a global problem by imposing only a tax on yourself. I mean, that's a very – some people see that as like sort of a, a, like a more moral way to do it. 
but it won't. I, I don't see it personally as it actually solving a problem. I mean, if, if, if China wants to increase the greening of the earth or if Russia wants to warm Siberia, there, uh, us imposing a tax on poor people is not going to stop that no, from no, happening. And we have, to, a, and we have to figure out how to discuss it with right, them like, yes, a, like but, a planet. But in fact, uh, um, okay, while the uh, left climate alarmists have mostly focused on let's stop our own carbon use, mm -hmm. there are now, yes, uh, right-wing carbon uh, uh, people who say, well, we have to stop China. Right. Okay, well... <laughs> Okay, you want to go to war with China to stop their carbon use? I mean, look, this is fundamentally seen, this, this is fundamentally a variant of the same argument. There isn't, isn't enough, enough to go around. Right. Okay, <laughs> there isn't enough to go around. That's why we, the Germans, have got to have it out with Russia, and preferably before they industrialize. Blah blah. Mm -hmm. Thus, World War One. Thus, World War Two. Okay, and now this is just a variant on the same theme. Instead of there isn't enough food to go around, or there isn't enough rights to use carbon to go around. Right. Or there's too many people. Or, or there's, there's too there's, many yes. people, so let's get rid of the people we hate. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and this was so dramatic recently with the very bizarre um, uh, media phenomenon that we're used to nowadays where a story just explodes and go viral with the Amazon where I saw both right wing and left wing extremists basically implying we we have to invade Brazil to save the Amazon because it's somehow our property based on this you know this news now now just to be fair I like the Amazon and I uh, I you know I don't want it burned down but it was such a bizarre shift and it was scary that people got so immediately possessive of this thing that they knew almost nothing about. And it particularly upset me because I used to live in uh, in um, tropical Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, and I saw what farmers have to do there. And uh, like I, you know, I was a kid of the '90s, so this is around the Fern Gully days when just like, you know, oh no, we're when when actually deforestation was at its peak in the mm -hmm. in the mid '90s. So I went there thinking, oh, this is so evil that they're tearing down the rainforest. And then I saw, well, it's actually very hard to stop a rainforest, and I saw the poor farmers. Mm -hmm doing this because uh, it's easier to clear brush with fire than with when you don't own a tractor right. because that's what you have. Um, so it, again, it seemed to uh, your, your theme that there's this, this prevailing uh, political ideology that just seems to come from everywhere that, that we're, yeah, that we're all in this zero sum game. Right. We're and not in danger of there being too many people. We're in danger from people who think there are too many people. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that you said that. Yeah. Um, you said that on the internet, I think. I I've it. said that a number of right. times because that is, that is the truth. <laughs> but that is what is so great about your positive message in this is that space really is infinite, at least to the scale that we're at now. You know, I I would love to live in a day and age where there aren't enough planets, but we are definitely not in that age. Uh, especially with all the discovery of things that we really did think were resources special only to Earth, like water. I mean, I'm just blown away. I've talked about it a lot on this podcast. I'm just blown away by... The constant discovery of water and then on top of that now we know we can get water even when we don't have water and so um yeah no uh, the recent uh, probes of course we've now detected water on the moon in significant quantities near the south pole mm -hmm. in permanently shadow craters it was very sad to see the loss of the indian probe yeah uh, that's true it was supposed to help find that water but okay but we'll get there 
And then, of course, on Mars, with the ground-penetrating radar on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, we have found uh, glaciers in the northern hemisphere as far south as 38 north, which is the latitude of San Francisco on Earth. Mm -hmm. And these glaciers have pure water ice, uh, more than the American Great Lakes, and they're within feet of the surface. They're within shovel distance. They're just ice covered by a, a foot of dust. You can just dig a, a well yeah. <laughs> or um, so you you talked about going to Venus. Uh, I've noticed a lot of people are, are terra even terraforming Venus. Uh, have you have you are you excited about the people who are considering these like cloud city ideas? Do you think it's viable for any kind of scale? Have you heard? The, well, I, I, I look. I think Mars is going to be the first planet we terraform uh, because it's going to be the first planet we settle. Because you can and, stand on it. I well, guess. yes, yeah. but also you need to realize. Okay, look, terraforming Mars. Uh, I think. Um, we can imagine now how to do it uh, in, in broad terms, in terms of using artificial greenhouse gases to warm the planet, outgas CO2 from the soil that will warm it enough, the water will melt, and rivers will flow, and you can spread plants. But the, the, it will still be a big project. So who's going to want to spend that kind of money? It's not an academic exercise. The people who will make a desert bloom are the people who will farm that desert. So mm. it will be the settlers of Mars who... Um, see that Mars is terraformed, it will, of course, they would be the ones who benefit it. Mm -hmm. and, but what uh, if there's uh, a protection, Mars protectionists on Earth that demand well, they stop for our own reasons? Well, I think Mars will belong to the Martians. Mm -hmm. Mars does not belong to the astrobiologists. <laughs> uh, Mars does not, I mean, you know, we recently had this absurd uh, fit by planetary protectionists over the landing of a milligram of tardigrades on the moon mm -hmm. uh, where they will be dormant uh, forever unless uh, someone actually comes along and recovers the sample and puts it in the lab and grows them but there's a, but in other words, these which in people, itself would be a very interesting experiment it, would. it will be interesting to see if you can revive tardigrades after x number of years of exposure to cosmic rays on on the surface of the moon uh, but certainly I mean, the idea you cannot biologically contaminate the moon because the moon does not have a biosphere. Uh, Mars may have a biosphere deep underground in the groundwater, but, you know, the Earth's ancient biosphere continues to persist in our groundwater despite the development of a gigantic biosphere on the surface that is totally alien to them for the past three billion years. Uh, so if we go to Mars, we terraform Mars, we'll still leave... The any anaerobes that live in the groundwater unaffected, but beyond that, um, you know, I mean, who gave Mars to the astrobiologists anyway? Uh, <laughs> and really, how are we going to make fundamental discoveries on Mars if we don't go there? I mean, look, going to, to the the real question with life on Mars isn't whether there's life there. I think it's almost certain that there's life there because there was life on Earth when there was water on the Martian surface, so Mars would have been uh, inseminated with life if from no other source than the Earth right. uh, Just, because uh, through natural transfer. Back, right. Yeah, sure. Okay, the real question is, did a separate biosphere evolve on Mars? Did they have their own genesis? 
And that will require drilling down underground like a kilometer, bringing up samples of water subjected to biochemical analysis to see, do they use the same genetic alphabet as all Earth life, RNA or DNA? Or do they use a different alphabet? You know, in other words, the, the English and the French and Spanish, we all use the same alphabet because it has a common origin in the Latin alphabet. The Chinese use a different alphabet, doesn't have a common origin altogether. Mm -hmm. So is there only one alphabet of life in the universe or are there multitudes of alphabets. How diverse is life? You're only going to find it out by going to Mars and, and setting up drilling rigs and drilling and bringing it up. And there'll be absolutely no confusion over whether the life you find is, is native or whether you brought it. That's a, also total nonsense. The, the, I mean, obviously... Is that part of the planetary protection ideas? Yes, that if it's too close, their, we won't know yeah, where it's from? But here's something? the thing. Number one, if it's different, obviously you didn't bring it. Okay, And if it's the same and it's native, it will have left fossils and other biomarkers. And to uh, say that that does not prove that it's native is, is like the creationists who say, how do you know that there was life on Earth before there were people... The fossils could have been created by God when he made the rest of the planet. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the, you know, it's nonsense. It's not science. Uh, if if their life on Mars is native, it will have left fossils as well as its current representatives, and, and it will be obvious. Mm -hmm. On you the other hand, if you find E. coli on Mars and no evidence of past life on Mars, then it means, yeah, you brought it. Uh, do you think that applies to, like, Enceladus and Europa, where they have oceans, where we're almost certain that we have organisms that will possibly take over the second they're they're there those uh planets are very well shielded from surface activities by kilometers of ice mm. uh and basically if you don't go you won't know uh, so if, if, if you want to do, if, if you actually are for astrobiology, then you should want people to go to these planets because human explorers can do far, far, far more uh, in, 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 in studying and learning about a planetary environment mm. than robotic probes can. I'm all for robotic probes, mm. uh, well, but, but the best probe is a, is a human scientist on the scene. So I'm really excited about uh, moon base, not just for the fact that a moon base sounds super cool and everyone's wanted to live in one since they were a kid. But I actually think there's a lot of science experiments that we can do on the moon that we can't do here. And I find it very similar to how we do a lot of physics, a lot of nuclear physics in the South Pole. So some of those, I just wanted to bounce some of those ideas. So I, I work with neutrons. And one of the things that's very difficult to do with neutrons is have them go for very long, very long flight paths in a, in a very good vacuum. And there's tons of physics you can do. There's tons of fundamental physics you can do. The moon would be a great place to do that because you could just set up experiments and do this. This is not a thing. Sure, you could set up a satellite to do it, but it'd be very difficult. It'd be really nice to just have a base where, you know, scientists could go and do a whole bunch of very unique experiments similar to the South Pole. I, uh, I agree. And not only that, um, things like fusion reactors, mm -hmm. um, which uh, their effectiveness increase with the square of their dimension, but they're uh, very difficult to build large ones on Earth because they require hard vacuum. And yet on the moon, that's available uh, in unlimited quantities. Right, so, you, you could have like the equivalent of a huge particle accelerator, you know, that just goes on and on and on and doesn't require all this uh, vacuum tubing and stuff it, like that. Exactly. LIGO is another example where... You know, most of the structure, the experiment itself is actually very tiny, but most of the structure is this, uh, um, you know, it's, it's just the vacuum tube for mm -hmm. the laser to go through, mm -hmm. you know, whereas the, on the moon, that's for free. Uh, another exciting idea I think that we could do is, you know, right now there's a lot of controversy about the uh, 30 meter telescope 
Um, uh, and, you know, we're trying to put this, uh, the larger space telescope, the James Webb telescope in, but it has to physically go in a ship and be launched. And you can't, you know, we're, we're, no, we're decades away from being able to launch something like the 30 meter into something the size of the James Webb telescope. So uh, I'm really excited about the possibility that we actually get to, you know, do things like make science instruments on the moon rather than bring them to the moon. I can imagine a future where we build a 100 meter or 200 meter telescope on the surface of the moon with its lower gravity using, you know, silica from the moon itself rather than a thing we're sitting there and shipping. spin casting it. Yeah, yeah, doing all, I mean, all the materials are there. It's, uh, you know, it's aluminum and, and, and sand. So I, I really, I'm really excited about that possibility of actually doing science experiments that just aren't even conceivable at the moment because we're all so limited by this thing that we, everything has to be built ahead of time for decades and decades and if it breaks you're screwed and if it blows up all the way over you're screwed um and you know the payloads are always limited by the size of the rocket you can put it in so um so i hope there's a moon base just for that reason alone now uh so i want to talk about the gateway because we talked about this last time it was a new it was a new suggestion back then last time we had an episode i think and uh people even i think I got requests. I asked somebody, hey, what's the number one question you'd ask uh, um, Dr. Zubrin? And they said, why is he so opposed to the Gateway? Well, it's been a while, and Gateway is still part of the plan. And um, it's gotten to the point where I'm actually kind of confused by what uh, um, NASA is saying about it. Because I don't understand. They keep making this argument that it's necessary to get Delta V to go up and down in the surface. And I don't actually see where that is coming from. Do you have a... Do you have a way to translate what they're saying to, to yeah. what? Okay, look, first of all, the Gateway proposal has been around since at least 2005, and it was strongly supported by Administrator Bolden, who opposed going to the moon. Okay. So the Gateway so this was, was like an alternative. The it Gateway was... was not proposed as a means to go to the moon. It was proposed as an alternative to going to the moon. Mm-hmm. And inserting the Gateway into the lunar architecture is just a group of people at NASA headquarters saying to the people who want to go to the moon, you can't do your program till you do our program. And the, do you think they uh, see it as uh, not wanting to be cut out, or do you think they're seeing it as insurance? No, like they're the, worried that the moon landing itself won't happen. Okay. And they... the, the, the gateway was originally conceived basically as a means of creating a flight manifest for SLS and Orion. Okay, it is not spending money to do something; it is doing something in order to spend money. And uh, it's a tremendously harmful project. Uh, if it is built, uh, missions will be forced to use it. Or because otherwise it will become apparent to people that it was unnecessary. And uh, this will make doing lunar missions much harder. I mean, if you look at NASA's lunar mission architecture that they published recently, and I uh, have republished that diagram now about 10 times on on Twitter Mm -hmm. because it is just so ridiculous that each lunar mission requires four launches, Mm -hmm. uh, five different uh, flight elements, not counting the gateway, and six rendezvous. The the you know in Apollo we were able to do a lunar mission with one launch, one rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Okay, now if any one of those multitudes of things goes wrong, uh, some fifteen different things in that mission, 
the whole mission is toast. Mm. And that doesn't even count the launches to build and maintain the gateway. It is not a sustainable architecture. It is, it is a minimum capability architecture where each lunar mission requires an effort comparable to building a space station. And the, the, it's, it's pure nonsense. I mean, So what's know, the way around it? Okay. The, well, first so, of all... So you talked about this. Uh, well, you, you weren't uh, there, but at the 50th anniversary, uh, your proposal was brought up by Mike Collins talking to Trump, and we're going to play that clip. Uh, to get to Mars, you have to land on the moon, they say. Any way of going directly without landing on the moon? Is that a possibility? Yes. Well, we need to use the moon as a proving ground. So we have to be prepared to stay on Mars for long periods of time. We prove that out on the moon, then we go on to Mars. Go ahead, tell me. What do you think? Uh, we come back and try it again. Yeah, I guess we use... <laughs> well, that's a long time. <laughs> ah, that's a long time. How do you feel about it? Mars Direct. You like it direct? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it seems to me Mars Direct. You're I mean, impatient. I mean, who's, who knows better than these people? Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, they've, they've been doing this stuff for a long time. Uh, what about the concept of Mars Direct? So the, the, the challenge is, if we go direct to Mars, um, there's going to be a lot of things that we haven't yet proven out. So you feel that really landing on the moon first and figuring it out and getting ready to launch and you would like to you really feel launching you're essentially launching from the moon to mars uh i think sir the best way to think about it is we learn how to live and work on the moon but we launch to mars from a space station that we have in orbit around the moon a space station we call gateway right which gives us access to the moon but ultimately it becomes the deep space transport that takes us to mars with a gateway we will have more access to more parts of the solar system with humans than we could ever have otherwise. Because from the moon, it's very easy because the moon's gravity well is small compared to Earth. So what we aggregate at the gateway enables us to go further. So this was for the moon direct plan, right? Yes. So. Well, okay, so look, there's two fundamental issues, okay. Um, to, um, have an intelligent space program, mm -hmm. okay, what I call a purpose-driven space program as opposed to a vendor-driven space program, mm -hmm. okay? Number one is you have to choose your goals intelligently, and number two, you have to figure out how to pursue them intelligently, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, neither is being done in this case. Uh, I, I do not think that the moon is the best goal for our space program, however, I'll, I'll grant that it is a better goal than having no goal at all, which is what mm. the human space program has had for about the past half, uh, 40 years anyway. Uh, and the uh, so having a goal is better than no goal. But then, I mean, look, does anyone believe we would have gotten to the moon sooner in during Apollo if we had decided to build a lunar orbiting space station as a mission critical element on the way to the moon? No, I mean, probably not. <laughs> the, 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 in fact, the, I've the, gone the, back and seen some of the Von Braun, uh, his version of the space yeah. station. And it was a lot more elaborate. It was very, uh, you know, it was very 2001-ish uh, yeah. uh, um where you know, really people thought a space station had to have artificial gravity and everything. Uh. They didn't even have a simplified view of it. So it would have it would have dragged everything to a halt because we haven't even done that yet. Right. You know, but that's... here's the thing. I mean, think about this for a minute. Uh -huh. uh, at the time during Apollo, there were those who argued for an Earth-orbiting space station as being somehow key to going to the moon. Right. There were also people who said we had to have a Saturn Nine. And, and, and Stanley people... Kubrick seems to show that. Okay, I mean, yeah, but but, but, but but wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but we got to the moon without it. Right. In fact, we got to the moon 
only got to the moon by putting the space station aside. Mm -hmm. We would not have gotten to the moon had we inserted that into the mission architecture. And despite the fact that we actually do have a space station today, no one is talking about using it as part of the lunar architecture. Okay, so... You know, so this whole thing that we had to build a space station before we went to the moon was not only false, it, we don't even want to use a space station that we have in order to go right, to the moon. because that's not and, part of the architecture Right, <laughs> and, the, 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 mm. uh, and the lunar orbit gateway is the same way. It will add um, delta V to the mission, which is propulsion requirements. It will greatly constrain timing requirements of the mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, it adds complexity. By, by uh, timing, you mean because you have to, you have to rendezvous Yes, at the you right have to point. rendezvous. And yeah. they've got six rendezvous in their mission. Mm-hmm. Six. I mean, uh, we, we, surely you're joking, Mr. Brightenstein. <laughs> uh, the, 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 you know, I mean, look, this mission architecture they have come up with uh, has been um, brilliantly conceived to give a large number of stakeholders pieces of the action. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, uh, but that's but, but, but the requirement <laughs> for mission success has been uh, put aside. Right. Um, I mean, really, and the, 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 this is not a way to do an engineering project. Right. So I, just to be just to be fair, I'm personally okay with giving stakeholders spreading stakeholders out even at the cost of efficiency that's just my personal preference but it i absolutely can't be agree. at the cost of I can't admit, success but i'll actually agree with that that it can't be at the cost of success yeah i agree right if you if you allow lots of different states and lots of different senators to have a part of it that they can take to the constituent that's great but it can't just be to add nothing to the whole thing right but also absolutely. adding complexity if you if yeah. you, if you create you know, four launches, five flight elements, and six rendezvous. It's 15 mm. different critical parts of the mission, and they all have to succeed. So how do we fix uh, it with what we have right now? Okay, well, there's a number of ways. First of all, I've proposed a, a very different kind of architecture called Moon Direct, um, which uh, is a far more efficient way to explore the moon. And I've written this up in an article. It was published at length in the mm. New Atlantis. People can find it. I hope you can provide a link. Um, but um, you used a heavy lift vehicle, which could be a Falcon Heavy or even an SLS. Yes, land a couple of Habs on the moon first to start, then use that heavy lander to land on the moon a, a lunar excursion vehicle, which uses hydrogen-oxygen propellant and has a delta V capability of six kilometers a second, which is what is needed to fly one way from the surface of the moon to do a propulsive capture in low Earth orbit. And that's a bigger delta V than flying direct from the surface of the moon to air Earth entry, but you don't need to have a heavy aero shield. Okay, you can be a very lightweight vehicle like the Apollo LEM, mm-hmm. and which makes it a, a comparable. But what, like a, what about Orion? Is that well, okay. Orion is much too heavy. That's I mean, look, part of the one problem? correction to the current architecture would be to simply replace uh, Orion with Dragon. I mean, as Orion weighs 26 tons, Dragon weighs 10. Orion is so heavy that even the SLS can't deliver into low lunar orbit with enough propellant for it to come home. If they used a Dragon, they would be able to deliver it into low lunar orbit with enough propellant to come home, plus a lunar excursion vehicle. Thus, you, in, if you were just thinking of redoing 
doing Apollo, that's how you could do it. But because they're deciding to use uh, a, 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 a capsule that weighs almost three times as much as it should, literally weighs three times as much as the Apollo capsule, which weighed mm. nine tons. Why does it uh, weigh so much more? I mean, I know it holds more people and it's bigger, but I mean, what, what, what went wrong? Uh, I believe requirements creep. Um, so how do you how do we make sure that doesn't happen to Dragon? Because Dragon's not well. Human dragon raising. exists, and Dragon weighs ten tons, and so it's much lighter. Now, in fact, so if if look if you did that, just replaced Orion with Dragon, then you wouldn't need the gateway. Well, they want to need the gateway. Hmm. Okay, uh, the gateway is something they need to need um, because they want to have those launches for SLS and and so forth, and they. I mean, it's it's just crazy. They are doing things in order to spend money. They are not thinking of the most efficient way to do things because that would cut various vendors out of the action. And this is a vendor-driven program. If it was a purpose-driven program, okay, you seek to minimize expenditure, not to maximize expenditure, mm -hmm. okay? So the entire logic of this thing is backwards. And this is not going to give us a capable of lunar base. I mean, you know, even if the mission were to work, you'd only be able to do one mission every couple of years using this architecture mm -hmm. at, at tremendous cost. So it's not... Um, a cost-effective way to explore the moon. And certainly inserting the gateway into the Mars mission architecture is off the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, and is it even designed? I mean, is it around what? the gateway? <laughs> well, uh, presumably they have uh, designs. They uh, actually gave out a contract for one of its modules. Um, so, but it, it, it's just a, a crazy plan. Look, you know, here's Elon Musk. Musk wants to actually go to Mars. Is he talking about building a lunar orbiting space station as part of his mission architecture? Mm -hmm. No. No one who actually wants to do this would think of such a thing. And in fact, there was no lunar orbit gateway in uh, von Braun's Mars architecture in 1969, in uh, the, even, not even in the NASA 90-day report in 1989, not in my Mars direct plan. Uh, of 1990, not in the synthesis group plan, not in Griffin's Mars plan. I mean, this is like, all of a sudden, this is necessary. Just like uh, until two years ago, NASA was actually going around saying with a straight face that before we go to Mars, we had to put an asteroid in lunar orbit. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> that, was, that was a make-work project. Now, right. that was complete nonsense. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, why was that not necessary before that project was dreamed up, and why is it uh, not necessary again now. Okay, but briefly it was necessary because that was the 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 thing they wanted to spend money on. So how do you get uh, the gateway canceled without uh, really pissing off the senators that would <laughs> have to go back to their their uh, donors Look, and constituents? To, 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 Is there a way to repurpose to govern it, to to the, make it to redirect the effort to govern is to choose. Uh, and look, I mean, because they are spending the money on the gateway, they don't have the money to build a lunar lander, which you actually do need if you want to land on the moon. Mm -hmm. You really so, do so need a lander. Go, but, I mean, okay. can, can you just get the same people working at the gateway to start working on the parts who are still missing? Like an that, obvious, that would be, like a hab and a, and a lunar land, like the things we actually need. I, I would argue, <laughs> yeah, you should be able to do that. Okay. You, you know, I mean, really, I think... Uh, that the NASA administrator ought to be able to tell the various contractors and NASA centers, look, I'm willing to give you your money, 
Uh, but you have to build what I want. Yeah, because because <laughs> I'm having a hard time sitting there. If I'm an engineer that works at one of these places and I'm working on the gateway, I'm having unless there's some really important reason that I'm just not getting or that we're just not getting, I don't see why my job would be in danger from just working on a different part of the project. Was like a little bit more practical. Useful. No, I I don't think the engineers would have any problem with it at all. Uh, I mean, I, I, that's I, why I brought up the moon base, like. A moon base I, or a hab to me sounds like an extremely interesting and important part of the moon and Mars. They're building a thing that people, the things that, that like that you test with, that you have your students go into, building a thing like that that people live in and is a like a fixed station on another body. That's right. I don't understand well, where all the work on well, that is. Why it doesn't is exist? We, the problem is we have a vendor-driven program. It's like you know I have a company. And we have vendors, but I don't let my vendors tell me what I need to buy from them. Mm-hmm. Okay, I decide what I need to buy from them, uh, and I try to buy as little as possible, not as much as possible, but I do have to buy from them certain things in order to get my jobs done. But that's the difference: purpose-driven, spending money to do things; vendor-driven, doing things in order to spend money. And so that—that's what needs to be fixed. And there needs to be an understanding here that. There's nothing more important than mission success. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, frankly, I think Bridenstine has showed himself to be a masterful politician, um, despite the fact that his role in Congress was uh, modest. Uh, the guy is clearly qualified to be Speaker of the House in terms of bringing various factions together to uh, come to agreement on a project. The only problem is he's left out of consideration mission success. That's mm-hmm. a constraint that you can't drop. In engineering, things really have to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he does seem to be flexible, though, right? I mean, but although sometimes I say even confusing. Like, sometimes they were talking about ditching SLS, and then they weren't, and I, I don't know. I'm all... It's, well, he, so he's, is it possible he's, he's just negotiating right now? Well, <laughs> he, he certainly negotiates, and he certainly is flexible. I mean, I don't but think, he, I, but he, but but the th- the problem is there's a place where you have to be inflexible, uh-huh. and that is mission success. Do you talk to him directly? Because anytime I see him giving a speech, I swear someone in the press brings you up in, while talking to him. So he obviously knows very much about you. Do you? Okay. Do you guys? I have. Uh, uh, I talked to him before he became NASA administrator. Uh-huh. Maybe you guys uh, I, should just sit down. I and have just, not and been. Hash a, it out I've requested a meeting with him uh, since he became NASA administrator. I've not been able to get it arranged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm communicating with him through uh, published well, articles. Well, it's working. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's working. I mean, and, and, uh, I mean Collins we did bringing it, it up. Collins bringing it up in front, and Trump bringing it up. That, okay. that seems like did, a success. And we did succeed in getting the gateway scaled down. Originally, was going to require four SLS launches to well, build it. Well, there you it. go. There you okay. go. Okay, but. Frankly, we need to eliminate it because simply having it and having it as a key node in the mission is disabling for lunar exploration. Okay. All right. Well, I want to plug the uh, conference again sure. at the Mars Society meeting. Yeah, we're so, having a, a the Mars Society conference. It's going to be October 17th through 20th in Los Angeles. It's going to be at the University of Southern California. Awesome. And it's going to be really great. Uh, first of all, we're going to have a debate. On the Gateway. Oh, I saw and, that on the agenda. Uh, That's great. Okay. Uh, Professor Greg Autry, who is a supporter of the Gateway, is going to debate me one-on-one on the evening of October 17th. It's open to the public. I want, I'm uh, going to that. And, for sure. uh, you know, that's going to be exciting. 
Um, you know, we have numerous presentations on all the uh, upcoming NASA missions to Mars and so forth. Uh, the Mars 2020 rover, for example, as well as the reports on the discoveries of the probes in current operation. Um, we're going to have a report from Russia on uh, their work uh, at the Institute of Biomedical uh, Research. Anastasia Stepanova is going to come in person to present that. Uh, it should be very interesting. Um, uh, she's uh, leader of the Mars Society Russia. Uh, and um, we're uh, going to have a presentation from SpaceX on their plans to send humans to Mars. Mm -hmm. uh, that will be a high point for sure. And uh, we're also going to have a rock concert called Mars Rocks. It's going to be at the Globe <laughs> Theater awesome. on the evening of Friday, um, October 18th. Uh, you have to be 21 or over to come. Um, but, uh, you know, my daughter suggested it to me, Rachel, she said, well, she said, dad, you know, you've been having these conferences for a while and they're great. All the debates and panel discussions, but you know, the environmentalists, they have rock concerts and that's why they're a lot bigger than you. You know, you're selling classical music. You got to be selling rock and roll. And so we decided that that's exactly what we're going to do. Awesome. Uh, so we have a, a concert, uh, uh, and it, it's only $15, and uh, members of uh, Pink Floyd and Devo and, and others are going to be playing there, mm -hmm. uh, and it should just be a lot of fun. Did you get Brian May? Uh, I, I don't know the, the names of the individual performers. Oh, oh well, he's Brian May's the, the uh, guitarist from Queen who now works on New Horizons. Okay. Well, uh, I, <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, I, it's I just know. a joke. I, 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 I haven't been uh, hands-on on managing this, uh. so I don't know the exact, but there's, there's posters out on the net that tell you about the, uh, the, the concert. Okay, awesome. So, you know, Mars just wants to have fun. Right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you very much, Dr. Robert Zubin. This has uh, been really entertaining. Well, thank uh, you. Thanks for being on the show.